Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what is it with the uh, with the bees versus the wasp? Uh, we've, we've talked about this twice on our Facebook page, mm-hmm. which is Blow the Mind mm-hmm. uh, on Facebook. Find it that way and interact and share your own thoughts on this. But uh, we've brought up bees versus wasps. Uh, twice, uh, and basically just ask for, for people's gut reaction. Like, who are you going to side with in this this classic uh, rivalry between the, the the wasps and their stingers mm-hmm. and their nests and their stingers, and then the bees with their hives and their honey and their their fancy culture? Like, which which side do you you huh, go for? Huh, okay. And the, and everyone seems to go for the uh, the bees. I mean, right. I'm I'm pro bee, and it's not just because I'm a lady and I'm like, oh, they're so cute and fuzzy. But they I know do, they're going to sting me. Yeah, but they do get by and cute, you have to admit. Yes, they are. Whereas the wasp, I'm actually pro-wasp because even though they tried to kill my sister, they are <laughs> sleek. Um, they are they are deadly. They have this like totally sci-fi horror book uh, kind of lifestyle going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really speak to the nine-year-old in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm going to side with the wasp uh, every time, I think, even though there is no such thing as delicious wasp honey. Uh, and, no, there and, isn't. And, and I can't think of a single wasp cartoon character. Whereas cartoon bees, they're everywhere. They're stinging Donald Duck. They're, <laughs> you know, they're they're the the centerpiece of whole motion pictures. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, yet they are used sometimes as sports mascots, right? Which well, makes well, sense okay. because they are, they are aggressive fierce. jerks. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, that's the thing. You want to you want your your mascot to. Be an aggressive jerk. I mean, you don't how, want it to be a big fuzzy bumblebee. A big fuzzy bumblebee. It's like the Cleveland bumblebees are going to be coming <laughs> <Yeah>. at you. <laughs> the whole audience starts going, which, and that's not menacing at all, right? We might sting you, but we'll eviscerate ourselves in the process. I mean, which we'll get into later. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just not as uh, as as fearful uh, a prospect as the the wasps coming at you. No, but it's interesting to look at these creatures side by side because they have a, a shared history. Yeah, we'll this talk is, about. it's not just an arbitrary pairing. Like, what would win in a fight, a grizzly bear or a, a bull shark? I mean, this, yeah. these two species share a common history uh, and, and evolved from a common form in the far, far, far ancient past. If you were to go back about a 100 uh, million years back to the Cretaceous period, you would find a very interesting world, a very green world. All right. Bucolic. Take us back. Yeah. It's a very green world. Mm-hmm. But there, uh, you know what you're not going to find? You're not going to find any flowering plants. It's occupied mostly by conifers. So, uh, so we have a lot of pine cones. A lot of pine cones, yeah. A lot of greenery. A lot of greenery. And the whole way that uh, these plants uh, spread their seeds are via the wind um, mm-hmm. or, you know, or just sort of uh, letting them fall, letting them just casting the dice and letting them go where they will. So... On top of this green world, you already have a thriving insect community. Mm-hmm. Things, I mean, just like, like the insect world is today, it's just a nonstop uh, brawl of uh, species eating each other, um, you know, uh, har- mating. mating with each other, warring against each other, forming these little, uh, uh, you know, hives and nests. It's it's these already these are the crazy. original brave hearts. Yes, yes, and you have carnivorous. Wasps in this time, and these these are wasps that are going around. They're hunting. Generally, they're hunting spiders, mm-hmm. and, and spiders remain a, another classic enemy of the wasp. Uh, they're kind of kind of the the whipping boy for the wasp, really. Um, <laughs> and these wasps are, are pretty much owning everything. Like they they're just going around. They're eating what they need, and they're uh, and they're and they're using the, the meat that they gather to feed their their young. It's a you know it's a, 
a perfect world, right? Right. Like what? What could change? Hmm. You see, pine cones, no flowers. Oh, those romancers, the flowers. Right. The flowers emerge, and and mm-hmm. uh, basically the idea here is that, uh, it, and I'm going to probably inevitably personify evolution a little bit here. Yeah, but, we're going to do that a bit here. Yeah. So you have this plant world. You have all these insects warring each other on its surface. The plants eventually be- uh, come to exploit all that traffic. Mm-hmm. You need to get some genetic material from plant A to plant B, say. Well, let's put it on the back of this uh, this creature that is uh, waging a war across several different plants. Mm-hmm. So what we have here is the rise of the angiosperms, plants that depend on insects to spread genetic material and pollen from male p- uh, plant parts called anthers to female plant parts called stigmas. Okay. So, uh, they start to, de- they start producing this delicious nectar and, and pollen, uh, and sweetens the deal for the insects. And it gives them specific reasons to traffic the parts of plants where pollen is produced. Okay. Because now they have a food source. Yeah. And yeah. so suddenly these wasps who were all into, you know, they're killing and brutalizing and they're eating the spiders, uh, suddenly there's all this sweet uh, food stuff available right there. And it's easier to get. It's just there for the taking. It's dripping, uh, you know, off the uh, off the flower. You don't have to uh, engage in mortal combat with an eight-legged horror to get it. <laughs> right. So it it becomes the predominant food source for the wasp and the carnivorous wasp, the the wasp that goes out and kills and eats another animal, that steadily fades away. Mm-hmm. And the the wasp that emerges the kind of the and there are of course thousands of, of different types of wasps uh, but the, but this strain of wasp that remains with us today they do not eat other insects no they don't they don't they've completely removed that from their diet what they do eat is is the the nectar that's right and, and they end up carrying the pollen from plant to plant yeah but the kids are a different story yeah the kids and we'll get to that in a bit so what we have evolving from this is basically bees right. So you've got bees and wasps because bees now are a bit different from wasps. Right. But they're coming from the same genetic material. Right. Bees and wasps are both, um, both of them share a common descendant in these carnivorous wasps. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got these bees who are sort of hip to the whole flower gig, right? Because they're like, oh, okay, let's, let's start really exploring this in earnest or being exploited by flowers in earnest, right. depending on yeah. how you look at it. And you get the, these, these, uh, bees versus wasps where yeah. we are right now. Yeah. And of course this this leads to a difference in their body types too. Right. One has the body of a forager and one has the body of a predator because we're going to get into this a little more but it's essential to to note that even though the the wasp no longer eats prey itself, mm-hmm. it still has to hunt prey uh to feed its young. It's kind of uh, Yeah. Yeah, you have this uh, a great article on this how wasps work and I think you're uh what was the uh, analogy of the vegan parents bringing home a pepperoni pizza to their young <laughs> to their ones? Because yeah. they refuse to eat anything else. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like that, which uh, uh, they never quite, uh, the wasp world never was able to completely remove meat from its diet, mm-hmm. whereas the bees do. Okay, I see <laughs> that's where all this, that's the like a uh, tree hugging vegetarian uh, type of lovey-dovey bee comes in, right? Exactly. It, the, the the bees are more of a, a tree hugger, and then the, the wasps are, are out there killing. Uh, they're out there you know, harvesting their meat. Even though they're not going to eat it themselves, they need it for their young. Yeah. So the wasp has to has to retain the body of a killer. It has to... So you sleep design, mm-hmm. um, stinger that's, uh, that, that has some, generally has some sort of powerful venom involved. The, the bee is this kind of fat, doughy guy with no, you know, kind of a furry, no, no. bumblesome... I I think rotund, rotund instead of fat. Um, 
and hairy with bristly flat legs. Those are good for gathering honey. Uh-huh. And of course, as you said, the wasps have those thin waists and they're very sleek and they've got smooth shells. And then if you look at bees too, they've got, um, and, and wasps, they have ovipositors too. Yes. Now the ovipositor is pretty uh, interesting. Of course, only the females have this yes. because it is a... Uh, th- Ovi for ovum, ova, eggs. Exactly. It is an instrument for the laying of eggs. So travel back again to that carnivorous wasp. How's it depositing? It needs to deposit eggs with that ov- ovipositor. But where is it going to put it? Uh, it started laying eggs on other creatures. So it's <laughs> it's like... Uh, now I'm going to lay eggs on you. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. And eventually they were like, well, laying... Laying my young on a caterpillar is one thing, but I want them to, I want them to stay warm. I want them to have a, a nice meal when they wake up. I'm going to go ahead and lay them inside the caterpillar. Now, of course, the wasp doesn't ask the caterpillar what it thinks of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just starts doing it. So the ovipositor becomes not only an instrument to lay eggs, it becomes a surgical instrument mm-hmm. for the implantation of eggs inside uh, the body of another insect. Right. This ovipositor is, is literally like a blade. Right. Right. It's, it's, uh, fashioned like this just so that it can do that. Right. And, and then they begin to evolve these different chemicals, you know, because, uh, you're performing this crude surgery in the insect <laughs> world to uh, lay your eggs inside this caterpillar. You know, the caterpillar may be moving around a little too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, they begin to, to develop venoms as well. They end up paralyzing the prey or, um, or in, in some way uh, impacting it to facilitate the surgery. So wasps continue to, to use this in many cases. Uh, there are plenty of parasitic wasps today, as we'll get into, that still lay their eggs inside or on mm-hmm. other animals. Uh, then there are other, there, there are ones that don't. There are ones that, uh, that build nests, uh, lay their, their eggs in there and then bring the food back. Right. For their young. And when we're talking about wasps, we're talking sort of in generalities because do recall that it's like 20,000 species for both bees and wasps. There's a ton of them and they all have a little bit different, uh, behavior to them or, um, a bit, you know, this and that going on in terms of where they lay, where they lay eggs and what they do. And bees are even further removed from the prospect of laying eggs inside another creature, but they still have the ovipositor, the stinger, and it retains the sting. Uh, they, they have, uh, they have kept that. Uh, because it uh, ends up being very useful as a defensive weapon. Oh, and we're going to talk about weapons in a moment here after the break. Uh, we're going to talk about some brawling. Right. So the battle continues right after this. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of Tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. And we're back. We, we rejoin the battle between bees and wasps. All right. Well, we've talked about the ovipositor and stinging. Let's talk about the big, the big sting, as the I like sting to call itself, it. Yes. The sting itself, yes. Yeah. What happens here? Do they all of them die after they sting you? Just some of them? Oh, well, of course, wasps generally can, uh, can sting multiple yeah, times. Yeah, over and over again. Yeah. They've got smooth stingers. Mm-hmm. But the one that I'm thinking about is the honeybee stinger, which is actually barbed and it sticks in your flesh. Um, and when the honeybee tries to actually fly away, her stinger won't budge. So it's very sad, actually. Uh, it rips from her body and essentially disembowels her. Right. And then she dies. Now, when it stings human, now there's some, sometimes they can use these against other insects and it not eviscerate the user. Because but, it's not getting stuck in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but in humans, yeah, that's always the thing. It's like the, the honeybee will sting you once and then it, it dies stinging, which I think also adds to, it's like, oh, it stung me, but it died. 
So I can't hate it. Whereas the wasp comes along, there's no bar. The wasp can sting you all day. Right. And it doesn't care. Well, and, so for uh, the bee, it's sort of like a noble death. Is that where? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a noble death. And the wasp's like, I use this all the time. <laughs> I'll sting again. Do you, can we do this again tomorrow? 8 a.m.? You know? Yeah, we'll set a date. I like the little voice you're doing for the wasp here. <laughs> I know, I'll he, do it again. I, I know. I should be able to do more of an Italian, like, you know, stereotypical thug kind of a thing. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. You were going there. Yeah. Uh, now it's uh, it's interesting to note that uh, even though the honeybees, uh, this is a, a something I found in Tracy V. Wilson's article on mm-hmm. uh, bees on the website. The the males don't have stingers that break off in people's flesh, but they do have endophalluses. Uh, and oh my. When, when they mate with the female honeybees, it breaks off inside the female's body with the queen, of course, uh, fatally injuring the male in the process. So, Oh, yeah. We've talked about this before, too, in, in another podcast about the sort of very scary proposition sometimes of mating mm-hmm. in the insect world, um, decapitation and all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah. Um, wasp and bees, when we're talking about the war here, we're talking about a war between females because yeah. the females are the species and the, the, the males are just there to... Uh, facilitate mating. And in some cases, um, I believe it was a, there's a type of bee where when the, when the males are no longer necessary, they go and just kick them out. In case you're wondering, the bumblebee sting is one of the most painful stings. Is it? Yes. You get a lot of swelling and irritation. And I just wanted to also mention Africanized honeybees, also known as killer bees, mm-hmm. that live in South America and southern United States. They have been known to chase people for over a quarter of a mile. Wow. Uh, once they get excited and aggressive. And the reason why they're called killer bees is not necessarily because they kill uh, people so much is that their venom, their venom is, uh, you know, no more dangerous than any other honeybee. It's mm. because their attacks are more harmful because they attack in greater numbers. Right. So, um, that can really incre- increase your chance of having a severe allergic reaction. Right. That's why they're scary. So let's let's uh, talk a little bit about some of the abilities of these uh, particular uh, creatures. Um, I'm going to come back again to the parasitic wasp, which is a concept I love. You know, it's something about you know you you grow up watching Alien and uh, and, and and I mean that's basically the the concept of the wasp uh, taken into a sci-fi uh, human uh, world. Is this the the ladybug bar mitzvah that you? Isn't uh, this what you call it? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll get to, get to that. Uh, yeah, for sure. G- growing up, I uh, grew up in uh, like rural Tennessee, and mm-hmm. so there there are dirt dauber nests everywhere, the, the uh, or mud daubers as they're known in some areas. And uh, if you've ever broken one of these open, it's really neat. You'll find the, there are these little cylinders, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where the egg will, will be, and the larva will grow. And they'll just the the wasp will just stuff these things with uh, with uh, paralyzed or dead spiders. Right. So that, so when the young wakes up, it'll have a meal. And so if, if anyone out there is just completely anti-wasp, I think it's important to note that these things kill the heck out of some spiders. So it, yes, and, they do. And a lot of the spiders that they go after are things like uh, brown recluses or uh, black widows, things that you definitely don't want around uh, and, and and definitely don't want crawling on you. Uh, or in any coming into any kind of contact with you or uh, your uh, the people you love. And in these cases, they'll fill a cylinder with uh, like upwards of forty spiders. I'm not talking just like a few forty spiders. Then you have wasps like the Pepsis wasps, uh, also known as tarantula hawks, and they will uh, each lay an egg inside a single paralyzed tarantula, and then the emerging uh, larva proceeds to eat the imprisoned spider from the inside out, which is pretty. That's pretty, pretty gruesome. Awesome. I like yeah. it. My, one of my my favorites, though, is a particular parasitic wasp known as the uh, Dinocampus uh, coccinella, which we just call the Dinocampus. So the the Dinocampus, when it's uh, when it hatches from the egg, uh, like a lot of wasps, it finds that it is inside another creature. In this case, it is inside a ladybug. All right, and uh, it was of course deposited there by an adult, 
and it and then it grows uh, to larvahood, and then it emerges in something that I am going to to try and coin uh, a, a celebration of chest burst, burst mitzvah, uh, where it bursts from the chest of this ladybug, okay. and then it's uh, they're squirming as a as a larva. It doesn't emerge fully grown in this case, um, so it's it's still. You know, it's it's not completely ready to fend for itself. So you would normally think, all right, so the ladybug has been uh, surgically uh, impregnated with this uh, foreign entity. This foreign entity has burst forth from its stomach. Uh, now the ladybug is going to die a merciful death, right? Right. Like, please put her out of her misery. Yeah, not 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 so in this case. Or him. Not only does the ladybug live, but there's a, a little uh, behavior modification involved in the uh, the implantation process that forces it to hang around and guard its uh, parasite baby as it grows to adulthood. This is awful. Yeah. It so the 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 larva is smaller than the ladybug. So you'll see pictures of this where the, the ladybug just continues to hang around, like hunched over the larva. To protect it, and scientists believe that, the, the, that this is caused by secretions left by the larva when it bursts out. Uh, it, it essentially reprograms the host to stick around. <laughs> All right, so so the wasp grows to maturity, right? Oh, yeah. And then what happens? Well, it doesn't need to to eat this uh, this ladybug because it, right. it doesn't eat ladybugs as, as an adult. It, it it doesn't depend on other animals for its food. But but once it reaches this uh, this point, researchers found that twenty five percent of the manipulated ladybugs recovered normal behavior following the ordeal. So a lot of them just did eventually die, but but some of them didn't. Some of them, like, went on. Like, that's how cruel the insect world is, but then yeah. how resilient the insects are. It's like you could go through this kind of catastrophic uh, uh, situation in your life as a ladybug, and then you eventually move on. And now I'm just wondering if there's any sort of, like, memory-racing enzymes <laughs> that were involved with that. Because, you know, that's... Of course, we're humans, and so we can't help but think in human terms. But imagine... Your body being occupied by this alien larva, yeah, which and, you then are reprogrammed to to not just host but um, protect, yeah, and then oh, and then know. imagine the ladybug is out like walking around on a leaf and it looks over and it sees this this wasp yeah. and she doesn't remember but she looks at him and she's like oh he's so cute and yeah then, and, and then or maybe it's like Stockholm syndrome oh, you know yeah, where it's yeah. like oh I remember you 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 fed off of me yeah. <laughs> We were little larva. And the wasp says, come come here. I have something to give you. And it all begins again. Yeah. Now, yeah I don't know wow. if they could survive a second. Uh, I would a hope second not. second bout of that. God, yeah. Yeah. That would be cruel. Um, and then there, uh, but then there are other uh, interesting uh, <laughs> moments of jerkdom in the wasp world, such as uh, with cuckoo wasps. Uh, and these are wasps that figured out long ago that the best source of food for their larva was other wasp larvae. Uh, and uh, what better way to feed them than by leaving the larva, their larva in another wasp nest to begin with? Um, so it's kind of like deadbeat moms of the yeah. wasp world. Um, and when the, so when the cuckoo larva hatch, they feed on the larva and food, uh, left, uh, in the cylinder of the actual nest builder. So, huh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I have a couple of B stories for you, sir. Okay. About how they are, um, they're pretty kicking themselves. Okay. Okay. They can do more than just make delicious honey and. Yeah, and save the environment. Okay. All right. All right. Um, okay. So small hive beetles, huge pests, right? They like to invade the hives of bees and eat their stored food, which they've worked so hard to make. And oh, you make it sound like the, like this beetle is a jerk when it's doing the same thing that humans do. I know on a, it's on doing what it's scale. programmed to do and it's completely fine. I'm just saying. Okay. And kill the bees young. Um, so in Africa where the beetles come from, honeybees wait until the beetles are in a confined space and then they imprison them within the tomb of resin. Oh, wow. Like that Edgar Allan Poe story. Yes. Yeah. The, the, uh, 
I can't remember. Uh, Montague? No, not anyway. I'm yeah. sure someone out there listening can, uh, let us know what that, what that is. Um, but yes, just like the Edgar Allan Poe story. Um, but they can also mummify. Ooh. Okay. That is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Stingless bees, which are native to Australia, use this, this tactic. The worker bees immediately start coating the beetles, uh, with batumen, which is a mixture of wax and resin that they use to build their nest entrances with. And all the while their hive mates attack continuously. So not only are they just kind of stopping the beetle in, in its tracks mm-hmm. by, by, you know, putting them into this batumen, but now all of them are like, Hey, let's start pummeling them. Pow, 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 pow. Wow. And they're coming at them. Okay. Now, I get it that it's maybe not as cool because they're all doing this as a group as opposed to having these individual abilities or abilities as an individual. But still, this is amazing that they are, they have these sort of defense tactics and are able to act on them. Um, and they're mummifying this beetle. It's kind of like you watch Fraggle, Fraggle Rock, right? Or you've I, seen Fraggle Rock I have before. seen it. I don't currently watch it. You don't religiously watch it. Every time you come home from work, it's yeah, like, oh, just, gla- oh here, glass of wine and some Fraggles. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, well, now you put it like that, I might do it. <laughs> but it would, you remember the dozers? The little guys who built all these things? They like they, they build all these little bridges and towers yes. and all. Yeah. And then the Fraggles would come around and eat their, uh, their, their constructions. Yes. But it would be like if the Fraggles came to eat the dozers' constructions and the, and the, the dozers built something around the Fraggle and entombed it to death. Underground. Yeah. See, yeah. now you're seeing it. You're seeing how yeah. cool the bees are, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, now, of course, uh, wasps, uh, social wasps have, uh, have the ability to attack as a group as well. Yeah. Which can be pretty devastating for someone who is attacked by a large swarm of wasps. But, uh, but it does right. occur. Uh, likewise, it happens with bees too. So that's something they kind of share, uh, among their more social species. But what happens when they go mano a mano? Then all sorts of interesting things happen because yes, this is like the, it's like the dark elves and the normal elves fighting. It's like the, um, it's like angels and devils in a way. You know, it's, it's like these, these, they have a common origin and, and they're forced to war against each other. Like they, they can't help it. They're, it's very Shakespearean. It's it, like it is. Yeah, it's it's kind of beautiful. Yeah. Brothers warring or sisters warring. I, I think uh, one of the coolest examples to look at are the uh, encounters between Japanese honeybees and the Asian giant hornets. Okay. You have such an interesting mismatch here because the Asian giant hornet is is pretty big. Like it's um I've seen pictures of it in people's palms and it's it's not quite the size of a cicada, but it's 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 pretty big. It's a okay. sizable thing. You would not want this this creature coming after you with its ovipositor. Uh and the uh the Japanese honeybees are small little bees. Mm-hmm. So you'll have these situations where the, the bees will be carrying on their normal business and suddenly a single giant hornet shows up. Now, this hornet is there to basically, it's discovered the nest. It's going to tag the nest with its pheromones, which sends out the signals for its, uh, its, uh, for its sisters yeah, yeah. to come over and, and launch a full-scale attack mm-hmm. on everything the bees have so they can take it back to their nest and feed their young. And when this works... You'll have situations where merely 30 of these uh, Asian giant hornets will kill 30,000 honeybees. Oh, that's a slaughter. Yeah, isn't it great? I mean, just like imagine Sheesh. that. Like each one of these is killing 1,000 bees. It's pretty okay. incredible. Okay. That's, but the, the thing is, I believe, I believe you have this example. Sometimes, however, they're able to kill that first invader. Before yeah. it can send the signal back home. It's very, very cool. It's called heat balling. And the, the honeybees have developed uh, this defense against the hornet, right? Mm-hmm. And they form a giant ball of bees, and then they pile on. Kind of like a beard of bees. 
a, a beard, a ball, yeah. just a, a large amount of bees congregating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like the giant ball because I like to think of it as like the giant ball of death. Yes. <laughs> coming at the hornet. Um, and it weighs it down while vibrating their wing muscles. And the activity increases the temperature inside the ball to about 46 degrees Celsius, hot enough to cook the hornet alive, but five degrees under the bee's maximum tolerated temperature. I- I'm sorry, but that is really cool. Yeah. Like they just crockpotted that wasp. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I saw, I've, I've seen some of you know, those thermal images of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And you do, you just see the, the, the temperature just really rise and you see that little guy cook right in the middle. Right. Yeah. Right there. And then, yeah, they had little Barbie with it. <laughs> um, and then there are Cyprian bees, which their strategy is to suffocate hornets to death because hornets have sort of like their, it's almost like a lung system in the uh, back part of their bodies. Mm-hmm. And so they mob its abdomen. Uh-huh. And they are, like, effectively strangling the hornet to death. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, they can be uh, pretty uh, rabble-rousing themselves, I'll say, these bees. Yeah, they they, they seem to have evolved uh, certainly more social uh, and strategic ways of dealing with what is uh, physically a superior killer. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, obviously, like I said, they can't really go one-on-one with wasps. That's yeah. not really going to happen. Um, they are Their strength is in their numbers. Right. But really, fireball death? It's pretty cool. Strangling. Yeah. But then again, I, I have to point back that one wasp uh, killing a thousand bees in a single battle. That, that's pretty, it's pretty awesome too. It's like, and it yeah. seems like it's like a battle that can go either way. Like who's, what's going to happen? Which is is really, it going to be a wholesale yeah. slaughter of bees or a strategic victory for the, the honey makers? Wait, and the slaughter is just sad considering that they're so important for the pollination of hundreds of our agriculture so, crops. Well, wasps are important for pollination as well. That's it. Figs. Well, and of course, figs. I um, I've had some figs, some local figs, actually, from uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and they're so delicious. And you would not have figs without fig wasps. Uh, fig fig wasps are really a whole other mind blowing sort of scenario to look at because you have very tiny little wasps. Like these are not the kind of wasps you're going to run from. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, at the swimming pool, they're very small. And there's for every type of uh, fig out there, there is a corresponding species of fig wasp. Oh, how cool! Yeah, and they're uh, like artisanal wasps. Yeah, and you would not get the edible fig without them. Um, you'll you'll see pictures of. Uh, I mean, it was one of the problems with figuring out uh, how to grow figs in new areas mm-hmm. because you you can't just take the plant. You got to also bring the wasps. So you'll see uh, pictures of uh, like fig. Farms, fig plantations, mm-hmm. uh, where there'll be a paper sack tied to the, the limb of a tree. Right. And that contains like older figs with wasps in them. So. Okay. Well, that's cool. But I will say this is my, my last comment for it is okay. that, uh, recently a truck in Idaho overturned <laughs> carrying 14 million bees, which were used for pollination. Um, so my point is that, uh, th- they didn't have 14 million wasps <laughs> well, that they needed to transport. They were bees. Yeah, well, all right. But but it also shows that the bee is kind of like, you know, owned by the man. Whereas the wasp, the wasp is a renegade. The wasp is out there living the life. But the man and the bee are one, Robert. Well, I'm They're just, one. Okay, but at the end of the day, you're going to have a delicious cheese plate. And you're going to have <laughs> you're going to have some cheese, which neither species had anything to do with until we breed the uh, cheese producing hornet in the future. Which would be really cool. Yeah. But then no, you have the cheese. You have the uh, the honey mm-hmm. to dip the cheese in. And then you also have the delicious fig spread. And so they're both important to me and my cheese plate. That's what I'm saying. 
Well, don't forget about the honey drizzled over your precious cheeses. Exactly. That can be quite delicious, too. All right, so bees versus wasps, an old rivalry. Let's uh, let's get on to some listener mail here. Our first bit of mail comes from listener Eric. And Eric had some interesting comments to uh, one of our recent uh, podcasts. He says, this is not meant to be a nasty gram. Uh, always a promising way to start well, yeah. out with, uh, an email. Uh, I just wanted to comment on something you said. Sorry to bring up uh, such an old podcast, but in the Neuromyths podcast, Robert made a comment that deeply disturbed me personally. He said, quote, Understanding consciousness sometimes feels like a Pandora's box. I wonder the more we unlock about about consciousness and the more we understand what we are and who we are, do we stand the risk of demystifying ourselves too much? Uh, and then Eric goes on to say, As someone who has suffered from Asperger's syndrome, which has caused serious social problems and depression, I long for a better understanding of the mind. All my life, I felt psychologists have simply been guessing as to what my problem is. The science of psychology is no better than witch doctoring. Granted, we know that some medications help with some problems, but what about the medications that don't help? In most cases, we don't even know why or how the medications work. It's amazing to me that you can take the heart out of a person who has died and put it in someone whose heart is failing, and uh, that person's life will be saved, and yet we can't cure the blues. Think of what could be done with a complete knowledge of the mind. Ignorance is not bliss, it is hell. Almost all suffering comes from ignorance. Knowledge is bliss. Uh, sorry, Robert, I love the podcast, but I found your comment offensive. But take heart, everyone is bound to make offensive comments from time to time. No apology is necessary. Well, that is excellent because none will be given. <laughs> um, no, but uh, but, but no. he brings up an interesting point. He brings point. up an interesting point. In posing this uh, this question, I'm I'm you know I'm not arguing that we shouldn't uh, seek to understand the brain or you know engage in any kind of uh, quest for knowledge. I I think that, that the thing is when we in any quest for knowledge, you're inevitably going to find out some things that alter your worldview and uh, alterations to one's worldview uh, can at times be experiments in enlightenment, but they can also be chaotic uh, and result in a lot of uh, reevaluation of what we are and why we are. I mean, especially when you look at things like human consciousness. So. Yeah, no, I understand where you're coming from because so much of our existence just feels like this mystical, just strange incredible experience that we are able to even sit here and talk and mm -hmm. cogitate on the level that we are all uh, able to do so and sometimes examining that can take away a bit of that but then I look at the other ways if when you examine it and you get to see the brain doing what it does it's magic to, to be able to peer into that and to see the process. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so there, there's a kind of magic in peeling away the layers. Yeah, I think one of the things is that even even if we, we build this map out you know, completely, the brain has such a hard time seeing itself as a part of the environment Yeah. that uh, you know, we'll have the complete map. But we'll, if we try and find the You Are Here sticker on the map, like at the mall, um, you may have some difficulty in finding it or fully contemplating what that means. Well, that's the crux of it right there. Yeah. I think that's what you were trying to get to. And and obviously you weren't saying, hey, let's not explore their brain. I think you were kind of saying like this this consciousness, this I am, this me mm -hmm. is really the big mystery of our being. Yeah. Um, so if it's less than what we think it is, it could be disappointing, right? Um, yeah. Because nobody wants to feel like just a cog in the wheel of, of nature, but essentially that we know, you know that that's kind of what we are. We want, we want it to feel a little bit more. Uh, special than yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, I do thank Eric for uh, sending in uh, some thoughtful commentary on, on the question that we posed. Yeah, he um, always sends very interesting oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, commentary. So thanks, Eric. 
And we also heard from Francesca. Uh, Francesca writes in and says, Hi, guys. I thought you might want to hear a story about my brother Lorenzo and his music and math skills. Uh, this, of course, responding to some music and uh, math-related podcasts we've covered. He is studying to be a professional clarinetist and is very good. When he was in high school and middle school, he did advanced math because he always knew the stuff that the teachers were talking about. I also am pretty good, uh, pretty good French horn player. Oh, I, I used to play French horn. Oh. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I sort of played it. It wasn't very good. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, she says, I am also a pretty good French horn and keyboard player and also currently go to 10th grade uh, math, though I am in 8th. I still wouldn't become a musician or a mathematician because I don't love math that much and prefer to listen to music rather than make it. I love your podcast and hope you keep doing really interesting topics. All right. Well, that's the goal, to keep doing interesting topics. That is the goal. So let us know if you have any topics that you'd like us to cover. We, we would love to hear from you. Uh, yeah, you can contact us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we are on both of those as Blow the Mind, one word, Blow the Mind. And you can send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Tomorrow.